Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, good evening, everyone. It is so great to have you all here. I'm going to say like a good evening, everyone. Isn't that great? I mean, I, I want to capture some of that energy I felt out in the hall. Everybody's like, thank God we're back together again, and we're in the same space, and we can talk to each other. It's just so nice to have everybody back here again. Well, good evening. My name is Phil Hansen. I'm the president of Global Minnesota. Um, thank you all for coming tonight to our 2023 U.S. foreign policy update with Tom Hansen. It's a good night for Hansons. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here in person with all of you, and I'd like to extend a warm welcome to those that are joining us virtually as well. We're so glad that you could be here in one way or another, and again, as I said, it sure feels great to be back here in, uh, for the first time in person, really, in, in I think three years. For those that are veterans here would know that for sure. So welcome back, everybody. We're over 300 strong in the pro program tonight, so thank you for being with us. As you might have noticed, I'm a little newer face to Global Minnesota. I started as president in uh, November of last year, and I've spent, um, prior to that, several decades uh, in nonprofit leadership, humanitarian service, and community engagement, most of that time with the American Red Cross. It's been a whirlwind couple of months. I've learned so much from our team and from, from members like you, and everybody's been trying so hard to get me up to speed, and I've really, really appreciated that. I want to thank you all for being so welcoming to me to this global Minnesota community. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'd sure like to do that. Uh, they're going to have a little reception afterwards, and we'll talk about that a bit more later, but please come up, shake a hand, let me know who you are. Uh, it's great to make those connections. Uh, this is one of the most popular events year after year, and it's easy to see why. As we brace ourselves for another fast-moving year of global news, it's good to have, take a time, step back, and take stock. Rest assured, tonight you will walk out of this room uh, with a clearer picture of where the world stands and where it's heading. Thanks to our speaker, former diplomat, and a renowned explainer of all things global, that would be Tom Hansen. Tom will cover the latest foreign policy developments, trends, and challenges facing the U.S., including a look at impacts of Russia's war in Ukraine, increasing tensions between the U.S. and China, and movements to promote peace and human rights from Ethiopia to Iran. Tom always makes astute global predictions, and after tonight, you too will be in the know and able to make astute predictions as well. This will be great. Uh, this event also marks the beginning uh, of a new year for great decisions. The Foreign Policy Association's Grassroots Global Affairs Discussion Program that Global Minnesota coordinates here in Minnesota. As most of you knew, know, the eight great discussions topics inspire global conversation, the global conversation series, and they're a terrific framework for understanding the year's complex global developments. You can purchase the 2023 Great Decisions Briefing Book from our staff after Tom's presentation uh, online or via the website, and don't hesitate to ask how you can get involved in a discussion group. For those of you who are new to Global Minnesota, I want to say welcome to you. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advances international understanding and engagement in Minnesota communities, classrooms, and companies. We are committed to continuing our important and meaningful work for generations to come and are proud to contribute to raising the global mindset for thousands of Minnesotans. Now, 
I want to get a show of hands in the room here. How many people in this room are currently Global Minnesota members in the audience tonight? Raise your hand. All right, so look around at those that don't have their hands up. Those are the people you're going to be working on. You're going to be working on these folks later. Thank you, everybody. Give yourselves a round of applause, members. Thank you for, thank you for your membership in Global Minnesota. Wow, so we're thrilled to welcome so many members here tonight. Our community of members is truly inspiring because you make our work really possible. From helping our K through 12 students to become more globally aware to providing international visitors a warm welcome, you are Global Minnesota and we do appreciate your support. And we appreciate you introducing new people to Global Minnesota. It's one of the best ways that you can continue to support the work we do. And we also extend a friendly hello and welcome to our guests who are in the audience here tonight as well. But do for you members, again, the biggest thing we can get help from you on really going forward is trying to get new folks to come and join and be a part of Global Minnesota. Um, the programming is stunning and I'm so excited to be able to share it with our communities and to share it with all of you. If you're not a member but would like to join us, we have a great new member special tonight. <laughs> that sounds like the new member special tonight. Um, become a member tonight before you leave and you will receive the 2023 Great Discussions Briefing Book for free. Uh, this book contains in-depth articles on the most pressing foreign policy issues of 2023, much of what Tom's going to be covering tonight and what Global Minnesota will cover in its programming in the coming year. The books are available for purchase for $28, but you get yours free tonight if you join us as a new member. And of course, this is what the, uh, the book looks like this year. That's what a good salesman does. He does show the book. So, <laughs> um, In addition, to uh, get you uh, excited about our upcoming gala on May 6th, um, we, and please put that down as a save the date. Our gala is coming up on May 6th this year. We are currently hosting a mini auction for a week-long stay in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Online bidding is open now until January 29th, which I believe is this Sunday. So get those bids in, please, by the end of the weekend. If you'd like more information on how to bid, please see Alex at the new member table at the end of our program. And now for a few logistical items about tonight's event. To help the conversation flow more smoothly, we will collect question cards at the end of Tom's presentation. Molly Hayes-Berry, another esteemed Great Decisions speaker, a former policy fellow at the Humphrey School for Public Affairs, and a former U.S. Department of State foreign policy advisor on the Middle East and East Africa is going to moderate tonight's Q&A. If you're joining virtually, please feel free to submit your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your webinar. Finally, I'd like to extend my gratitude to our longtime partner and co-sponsor of tonight's event, the Humphrey School for Public Affairs, the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I would like to welcome to the stage Dr. Mary Curtin, diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School and good friend of Global Minnesota to speak more about our partnership and introduce tonight's speaker. Please join me in welcoming Mary Curtin. Thanks, Phil, for that introduction. It is so great to be back here in person after three years. I think it was three years ago on a very cold January night that we were all here in person for this event. Um, I would like to send the greetings of our um, also relatively new Dean, uh, Nisha Bochwe, who was not able to be here uh, this evening, but asked me to convey her regards to Global Minnesota 
members and attendees because of the partnership that Phil um, referred to and the way in which we can bring um, the academic community and the broader public together to discuss and explore critical issues facing our world in events big and small um, throughout the year. And in particular, the partnership that we have in uh, hosting and providing events for our Humphrey International Fellows, some of who are here this evening. Um, I will not spend too much time introducing Tom uh, and uh, moderator Molly because Phil already did a great job of that and because um, many of you already know Tom and Molly, but I think that we are really lucky uh, to have my counterpart diplomat in residence at the University of Minnesota Duluth here with us every year and throughout the year to help us think about the critical issues facing the United States in foreign policy. And I'd also really like to recognize uh, Tom's incredible contribution to the various organizations, including the Committee for Foreign Relations, that provide different venues and different speaking events throughout the year that help Minnesotans of different walks of life come together to talk about critical global issues. Um, and similarly, my former State Department colleague, Molly Hayesberry, and former Humphrey School uh, student, um, has, has been really active in taking her experience out into the community as a great decision speaker, um, engaging with Humphrey students, uh, really being part of the community of this kind of discussion. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Tom up to the stage and um, really look forward to his always very thoughtful reflections on the challenges facing us, especially given the incredible events of the last year. Thanks. Hi, thank you. It's great to see you all again. After these very difficult few years we've been through, and uh, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, Mary Curtin and uh, Phil Hansen, the Humphrey School, and Global Minnesota for organizing this event again. Um, there's a lot to talk about tonight. <laughs> a lot has kind of piled up. And um, as Phil said, I think quite rightly, uh, given all that's happening, this really is a time to, in a sense, step back and take stock. And I plan to do a little bit of that tonight, um, talking about the, the pressing issues that the world is facing and that we're facing as a country, but also uh, trying to maybe give a little perspective uh, to what's going on. We've just come out of COVID. Hopefully, we're coming out of COVID. Um, February 24th, this past year, uh, the Russians' barbaric invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, the event of the past year, really, that has, has, has touched us all, moved us all, was this barbaric invasion uh, of Ukraine. You know, we, we stand in support of the Ukrainian people uh, in their valiant struggle for independence and for their territorial integrity. Um, and I think that the, uh, the U.S. administration has done an excellent job of, shall we say, alliance management. Yes, the, so, so Ukraine is, has been the, uh, really the formative uh, event of the, past, of the past few years, or, or months rather. And... And you can see from this 
photo. This is a, a terrible land war, flat terrain. It's a little bit like World War I with trench warfare, uh, Ukrainians trying to assault this Russian bastion that's been set up in eastern Ukraine, uh, taking heavy losses. There are drones involved, which is beyond what you had in, in the trench war warfare of World War I. This is a country that needs armor. It needs tanks. Uh, it needs tanks and more. And as you all, I'm sure you all saw just today, it's been announced that, uh, that the United States will provide 31 Abrams tanks, very, very advanced technology. And the, uh, the Germans 14 Leopard 2 tanks, uh, which will open the door to other NATO countries to provide NATO, uh, NATO tanks, Leopard tanks to Ukraine. So uh, the situation in this terrain should get better with time. But for now, uh, it's a real struggle and Ukraine is suffering greatly and, and needs our support um, as much as, as, as ever. So, you know, with COVID, with what's happening in Ukraine, um, last week, as every year, the global elite came together in Davos, Switzerland to look at the world, to talk about what, what the trends are, to hobnob with each other, strike deals. It's an annual event. I point out in this photo here, if you look up the tree-lined hill to the left, mountainside, there's a building there, a long building. That's a very interesting historical edifice. It's something that is used as the main meeting place for, uh, for Davos. It's called the Berghof Sch uh, Schatzalp. It's been there since about 1900 or earlier. Uh, the delegates take this funicular, lighted funicular up in the evening. Now this building has historical significance, which a number of commentators this year, for some reason, for the first time, singled out in the reports of Davos. This was the setting for Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, Der Zauberberg, that very building. He won the Nobel Prize in 1929 for this and other works. Uh, uh, this book is about the European elite of that time, before World War I, coming together in an upscale sanatorium. Mann um, describes the European society and below, uh, in the world below, the gathering clouds of World War I. And the novel ends with the outbreak of World War I. Um, you know, there's no direct parallel here, but a number, for the first time in all the years of Davos, for the first time, um, this was really commented upon in the international coverage of Davos. So looking out from the veranda of the Schatzalp, what did Davos man see this year? Well, there were glimmers of hope. Um, people commented that with China opening up now, there's likely to be what they call revenge spending by Chinese who have really piled up money during the very severe lockdown in China, that this would give some impetus to the global economy. Another glimmer of hope, energy prices, especially for liquefied natural gas, are coming down. It's been a warm winter in Europe. Um, and that's a positive thing. And then finally, the US subsidies um, for green technology in the, 
in the uh, Building Back Better legislation um, may have a positive effect. So these were all to the good. Now, now they pointed out in, in the reports coming out of Davos that there's a downside. China's opening might actually in, increase inflation. Um, you know, the restructuring of supply chains that's underway globally right now is inflationary as well. So there are some structural issues with inflation. And the U.S. subsidies are being seen by much of the world as protectionism, as a first step in a kind of beggar thy neighbor policy. I'll be talking more about that later. But in the report um, coming out of Davos, their, their, their annual risk report, where they asked the 1,200 delegates, what are the top risks going two years out? What are the top risks going 10 years out? And they, they came up with a dichotomy that I think is important, which is why I'm mentioning it, because it's the same dichotomy that we find right now in US foreign policy in trying to address the issues facing us. Um, the basic situation is this, polled about the threats going two years out. The focus was exclusively on the geopolitical risks, Ukraine, China, cost of living crisis. Nothing about sustainability or climate in the short-term risks. But the 10-year risks were all about climate and sustainability. And this is the disconnect. Um, as, as the report said, the, the short-term risks are crowding out concerns about long-term pressures on the planet and on adapting to climate change. Geopolitical rivalries heighten economic constraints and further exacerbate both the shorter and the longer uh, term risks that we face. So um, I'll be talking more about this disconnect uh, as I get into more details of some of these issues. But um, I think that the, you know, Davos is much criticized and rightly so. Uh, the World Bank pointed out as the, uh, the elites convened that last year saw the greatest increase in global inequality since World War II. Coming out off of a year in which global inequality is increasing uh, quite fast. So in the sense of taking a step back, you know, I, um, I'm fascinated with the trajectory of US foreign policy right now uh, because there's, a, there's an historical momentum to the way Washington sees the world. And uh, I, so I'm gonna, as Phil said, you know, taking a step back, uh, I'm gonna do that right now. Take a step actually way back, way back. <laughs> there's a kind of a um, symmetry to what I'll be describing here. 1789, uh, when we really became a country, uh, a Continental Congress, we had our first election for president, and our first century got underway, 1789. Um, we've talked about this before, but our early presidents were very much uh, focused on developing our own continent. We have blessed geography, protected by two oceans, no real threats near to us, and so we were able to do this. Um, and probably our major foreign policy plank was the Monroe Doctrine. Basically, stay away from not just our periphery, but from our region. Um, this was enforced by the British Navy. We couldn't have done it ourselves. But uh, I can tell you that in conversations with Chinese diplomats especially, they always raise this. You know, why, 
why do you pretend to this kind of influence in your periphery and we, and we can't? And of course, the, the answer we give is, but it's different. <laughs> so uh, I'll elaborate on that if you're interested. Um, anyway, by the end of this first century, exactly 1889, that's the year we, we became the number one economy in the world. And suddenly this development, uh, of course we'd had a war with Mexico uh, along the way, but um, in, 19, in 1893 we basically celebrated this at the Columbia Exposition in Chicago. It was kind of America's coming out party. Um, and already, just a few years later, here's the, one of the campaign posters for McKinley and his vice presidential candidate, Teddy Roosevelt. A whole new tenor and a whole new approach, and I, I love the, you know, we're not um, planting our flag to acquire more territory, but for humanity's sake, and I think that that has been very much uh, our ethos, uh, that, that we are a country with a democratic calling uh, and a role to play in the world in promoting democracy and human rights. And by mid-century, the famous article by Henry, uh, Henry Luce, uh, in Life Magazine, The American Century. This is an iconic article. It's what led to the idea of an American century, our second century. And of course, uh, that came to be with the two world wars, uh, that 30 years war of our era um, from World War I ending World War II, uh, led to our emergence, uh, obviously, uh, Yalta and the formation of, uh, of the Western Alliance. But as importantly, the meeting between FDR and Ibn Saud, the head of Saudi Arabia, where we struck the bargain on oil. We would protect Saudi Arabia for access to their oil. This was the beginning of the petrodollar, which really was a major fundament of the dollar's role uh, in the world, uh, especially when in 1971, the Saudis continued to accept dollars even though we had detached the dollar from gold. I mention this because there's a lot of talk now about a petro yuan, a Chinese Saudi currency, and I will talk more about that later as well. These are adumbrations along the way of things that are very current today. So this second century ended 1789, 1889, 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and with the uh, eventual collapse of uh, the Warsaw Pact, and then of the Soviet Union itself. And so we entered into our third century, and we're about one-third of the way in right now, if you think about it. And what, what has this new century <clears throat> been like? Well, I think one of the major accomplishments has been the expansion <clears throat> of Western uh, alliances and economics, Western values, that has taken place with the expansion of NATO, and also with the expansion of the European Union. This, is, this development is a major part of this new century. Um, and as Joe Biden has said in many speeches, the 21st century is the American century. Now, um, if you look at the other developments uh, in this one third of the way into the century, obviously the rise of China from Tiananmen in exactly uh, 1989, that same year. From Tiananmen, uh, 
on uh, this tremendous rise of China. The climate crisis has become more apparent, obviously, with each passing year. This is a, a new data point. Um, the United States has managed in this one-third uh, of our century to run up a $31 trillion debt based on um, expensive wars of choice, tax cuts, and spending uh, for our population after 2008 and after COVID, right? So there's, uh, but the result has been this, uh, this debt that we're dealing with today uh, in terms of our Congress. And you add to that uh, the war in Europe. So there are uh, so many new data points for this American century, third American century, and I want to discuss them uh, in some order now. First of all, obviously, the, the rise of China, the, sort of the reemergence of Russia, is leading to a new uh, geopolitical confrontation for us. Ukraine and Taiwan fit into this. Both China and Russia see those two conflicts as proxy wars being used by the US to contain them. That's, that's their solid view of what's going on. Of course, we see it as we are trying to help these two countries to maintain their independence, um, and in the case of Ukraine, to fend off an invasion. There are basically four situations right now that are of greatest concern. Um, China's rise, what Russia's doing now. Uh, Iran, obviously, you know, the, the talks have broken down pretty much on a new uh, revived nuclear deal. Uh, the new government is in Israel is um, very focused on the Iranian threat, and there are possibilities uh, that the Iran situation could become uh, a little more tense going forward. And of course, Kim Jong-un and North Korea are, are in overdrive. And there's more and more indication that these four are cooperating. So both North Korea and Iran are sending armaments, I mean low-level armaments, to Russia. And uh, China has given de facto backing. Uh, they're trying to straddle the fence, but basically accepting what Russia has done. Now, a number of studies have come out in the last couple of months, which I think are useful in sort of putting together the data points for what we're facing now in this new century. Um, I think one of the most important was the uh, UN population report that came out uh, at the end of of uh, 2022, and this is where we're heading. Uh, there's some very interesting aspects to this. Uh, number one, the overall population is a little, the projection to 2100 is a bit lower than it was even a year or two ago. Uh, people were talking between 11 and 12, and now it is a little over 10 because the population is going down in much of the world. India is about to surpass China as the most populous country. We all read last week that China for the first time has begun to decline in population. And look at this chart. It starts to 2050. Um, the decline is to about 1.3. It's a gradual decline. But then look at the next 50 years. 770,000. In other words, the Chinese population is reduced by half, according to the UN. Now, this is obviously a, a major um, decline. But it's not the only, by far not the only country facing that kind of decline. Here's sort of the list of, uh, of other countries. Uh, South Korea has the weakest demographics 
in the world right now. They set a record last year for the lowest birth rate ever recorded in a modern economy, 0.84. Now, um, obviously COVID comes in a little bit on this, but uh, these UN statistics were well formed before, before COVID. This is the, this is the whole decade um, and, and, and looking forward. Thailand, most European countries also are, uh, have declining populations. And here you can see uh, within this decline, there's one region that is actually growing and that's Africa, which means that the relative weight of Africa uh, in the human family will grow significantly. So this next chart I think is very significant for looking at the situation. Here, here's how it looks going out to 2100. What is the West will be down to under 10% of the human population. Um, if you take the G7 with Japan, it's a, maybe at about 10%. I can tell you that this data point is something that the Chinese and the Russians are using um, exhaustively as they reach out to the global south, which they now call the global majority. In, their, in the summit that they had, the Chinese and the Russians, in February, on February 4th, uh, this past year before the Russian invasion, in their communique, they said, there's a global minority that is trying to dictate its views and its values to the global majority. And by the way, this global minority is made up of all the old colonial powers, from Japan to Italy to France to the UK to the US. This is the narrative that they're using toward the global south. Why would you want to follow their course? So um, I don't think that, I'm not sure how persuasive this narrative is, we'll get into that a little later, but it's certainly the focus of China and Russia is shifting very much toward the global south uh, in the current circumstance. Now, the other data point of great significance, and this has to do with the global south, is climate, because it's the global south that will be most impacted by uh, the um, failing to meet these 10-year threats that we talked about earlier coming out of Davos. Uh, COP27 was a, not a great success, shall we say, and this map shows just how it is that the global south will be most impacted. Uh, by our failure to act. Uh, you know, uh, right now there's a terrible drought going on in, in the Horn of Africa. Our neighbors, Somali and Ethiopian, uh, have family back uh, in those countries who are really struggling now uh, with, uh, with violence, but also the water situation. This is from the Eurasia group that just reported. I, I wonder, I mean, this is kind of stark statistic, but it, if you can see from this, the uh, the number of uh, the percent of the global population facing water, water stress is up to close to 60% today. Um, so once again, the global south is, uh, is on the line for all this. And we are going back to coal. I mean, with the energy crisis coming out of Ukraine, uh, most countries now are going back to coal. This is a scene from Germany uh, a week or so ago, uh, one of their coal uh, installations is expanding to the point of, of taking over a village. The villagers are being moved um, and removed and Greta Thunberg was there, was detained uh, in the protest for this. 
And President Biden is basically saying uh, to our fossil fuel industry that it's your patriotic duty right now to increase production. Longer term, we're for green energy, but for the time being, once again, it's the short-term, long-term dichotomy we talked about before. And here we are. So the U.S. Census, uh, you know, finished up, and more and more kind of charts and data points are coming out uh, about our situation. And there it is. Uh, you can see in the dark blue, these are, are, are regions that have increased by 2% or more, not over the 10-year period, but, by, but annually. And you can see that a lot of them are in, uh, in Florida. In fact, the, by far, the fastest growing um, metro area in the United States is a place called the Villages in Florida, which is a pretty much a large retirement community. Now, this is our demographic future. You can see this is from the last census, uh, adults 18 and over. Uh, you can see the composition, ethnic, and then children under 18. And um, as you can see, the country is changing. There are more multiracial uh, couples and, and families. Uh, Hispanic population is growing. But this is within an overall demographic situation that's not as bad as a lot of the countries we looked at earlier, but were it not for immigration, our demographics would not look so great either. Um, the U.S. population grew at its lowest rate since 1930 in these last polls. Um, U.S. lifespan has begun to fall. We all know the reasons, whether it's the opioid crisis or, or other, other aspects. One very striking, looking at the 18 and under, uh, the number of under 18s dropped during the last census. For the first time ever, it dropped by 1.5%. Um, in 1960, the underage population of the U.S. was 36% of our population. Today, it's 22%. So these are demographic, as I say, not as stark. Um, you know, the, the Census Bureau titled its main report about the census, um, 50 states of gray, not 50 shades of gray, <laughs> 50 states of gray. Um, and here we are year by year. So you can see that the greatest generation is kind of hanging in there. Uh, Joe Biden's team, the silent generation is there, you know, still in then. But what's an anomaly is that the, the youngest generation should be much higher than that ordinarily, right? So, um, so this is, uh, as I say, the, these demographic trends affect us um, as well. And then um, the final thing I want to mention is, uh, is uh, our national security strategy. Another data point came out in October, and here we see the dichotomy that I mentioned before. Um, the strategy is based on the premise that we are at an inflection point historically, that the next 10 years will be decisive. And the paradigm, and we've all heard this before, is one of autocracy versus democracy globally. Um, Biden convened a summit for democracy, of course, early in his administration. The um, one threat that is voiced in this is, is the inequality in the U.S. The, the, this document defines U.S. inequality 
as one of the greatest national security threats to the United States. I mean, as you can see, the bottom 50% of us do not even register on this graph. Um, and of course, the top 10% are at about 70, over 75% of the wealth. So, I mean, it, there's always been inequality, but both in the US and, and globally, uh, it is increasing. This is the Situation Room in the National Security Council. And uh, the basic threat analysis in this document is that the number one threat facing the US is China, second, secondly Russia, the most consequential geopolitical challenge as it seeks to reshape the international order to our detriment. But there's a second great challenge and that's climate change which is called an existential threat. And here we must cooperate with other countries. Now, how do you square that circle? In the document it says, quote, no country should withhold progress on existential transnational issues like climate change just because of bilateral differences. Well, the Chinese, for one, are not buying that. And so we've seen, because of Taiwan and uh, other issues I'll describe, the Chinese have stepped back from cooperating on climate. This has been a, a major issue. They have stopped trying to rein in Kim Jong-un. Um, and that's one reason why he is, I think, now in overdrive developing missiles and, uh, and weapons. This is a great concern in Washington. We're trying to get the Chinese to become more cooperative. But the basic idea from China is you have a good relationship or you don't. And everything else falls from there. They, they tend to see this, you either have good guanxi, you either have a good rapport with somebody or you don't. They have a, a, the idea of breaking it down the way we do in our document um, is foreign to them. And maybe the most important issue that has fallen apart now with China is fentanyl. Uh, you know, the amount of fentanyl coming in right now to the US um, is setting records. The DEA seized, and this is from the report end of last year, they seized enough fentanyl to kill every American. That's what they seized. Um, 50 million fentanyl-laced pills. And these pills, will, they look like Oxycontin, they look like, these are duplicates. Kids are taking these uh, thinking it's something else and they're dying. Um, 379 million deadly doses uh, were also uh, picked up. And so for a while, China was actually cooperating. There were a number of high-profile arrests in China of groups, and these are criminal groups, that have been providing the components of fentanyl to the Mexican uh, drug lords. Almost all of the components do come from China. Um, you know, we're seeing this up in Duluth, Thief River Falls, some of the northern Minnesota cities are having huge problems right now because the stuff is coming in that way. Um, and I know Duluth uh, is really sounding the alarm about opioid uh, fentanyl overdoses. So um, we have to hope that the cooperation with China will get back, uh, back online again on these key issues. But for the moment, as I say, they are not accepting this dichotomy. Uh, between uh, being the number one challenge to us and 
being somebody that needs to cooperate with us. So what policies are we adopting now in this situation? Well, there's a term in Washington, I think originally came out of military, but it's used very widely now, dime. And these are the instruments of national power, the tools of national power. So you've got the diplomatic, informational, um, military, and then economic. And arguably, uh, in this new third century, we have been prioritizing military in our involvements uh, in the Middle East and economic in the form of sanctions. Uh, in many ways, sanctions have taken the place of diplomacy. We're very good at alliance management right now, very good at that. But the diplomacy, I think, uh, is taking second place to sanctions. This goes way back, actually, uh, in US foreign policy. Woodrow Wilson was a huge uh, convert to the idea of sanctions. In fact, he, he got the League of Nations to make it a major instrument you know, let's, let's not fight uh, with troops, let's use, uh, let's use sanctions. In fact, a quote from Versailles when he was there, he said, sanctions are a tool that brings a nation to its senses, just as suffocation removes from the individual all inclination to fight. It's something more tremendous than war. Now, sanctions were used ineffectively by the League of Nations. Um, they were used maybe most spectacularly by the US against Japan. We basically, uh, in the late 1930s, because of Manchuria, strangled Japan from its natural resources. If you ever see the movie Torah, 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 about, uh, it, 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 it fleshes out this diplomatic situation that led up to the attack. And there's a number of recent books that have come out uh, because the Japanese uh, reacted, overreacted, suicidally, if you will, to being cut off that way. And in fact, it's a, it's a kind of a precept of sanctions that, that you have to have a diplomatic dialogue going at the same time because nations are at their most dangerous when they perceive a, a threat like this, a strangulation like this, when there's no potential relief through diplomatic dialogue. And of course, the world's most sanctioned countries right now are by far Russia, and this is as of March, and uh, there have been a number of, um, of new sanctions levied on the Russians, and rightly so. So Ukraine, speaking of sanctions. Um, how far will Putin go? Uh, you know, his motivation in this, it's a mixture of almost mystical Russian nationalism. He wrote a long article the summer before the invasion about Russia and the role of Kiev uh, in the formation of the Russian state and of the Russian Orthodox Church um, and how this was integral to, to Russia and had always been part of Russia. He basically denied that a Ukrainian nation existed. Um, and so we have the tragic result. Now, Bill Burns, our head of the CIA, has pointed out, and he dealt with this as ambassador to Russia, and he's one who said, that this has been a red line, Ukraine, for Russia for a long time, for decades actually. Um, and as he said that, you know, the, the, what finally got Putin to move was not the idea of Ukraine in NATO, but rather NATO in Ukraine. Because since 2014, and this is ironic because the Trump administration had a very active, even while Trump had his bromance with Putin, we were arming the Ukrainians and training the Ukrainians 
on the ground. That's one reason they've been able to perform uh, so well in this situation. And so this is the basic, very basic uh, situation as Russia tries to hold this eastern swath, which they've now declared officially part of Russia. Um, you know, they, they, their parliament annexed these uh, areas, and so they're saying that any agreement that's, that is uh, reached will have to accept that. That'll be the basis, and of course, that's a non-starter for the West. The main fighting right now, this is just as of yesterday, is happening up around Bakhmut, um, where the Russians are making advances. Uh, this is where, the, where, the, where the, uh, the Ukrainians really do need more firepower and uh, uh, armor. Um, and they're taking, I hate to say this, but they're taking very, very heavy losses up there. Um, and you know, Putin's dream, he's always talked about what he calls New Russia, that part of Ukraine, which used to be primarily Russian-speaking. I think a lot of even the Russian speakers now have more of a sense of Ukrainian nationalism than they had. Um, whether he would want to go that far in, all the way to, to Kharkiv, it's hard to say, but this is basic idea in his head. Now, there are very strong reactions as, as Russia now is pounding Ukraine, trying to hit the infrastructure, and make the people suffer. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic, what's, it's barbaric what's going on. Um, and, and Ukraine, as I say, needs our support. Um, there's a new theme in Washington and beyond right now, and that is the decolonization of Russia. The idea that we need, on the basis of this, to push further and basically push to have Russia fall apart. There are many other captive groups, this idea goes. Uh, the Tartars, the English, the Chechens, all kinds of groups within Russia um, basically um, take Russia out of the central narrative. And that's happening. I got, I got the invitation materials for this conference coming up. The Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies, which is the biggest Slavic studies uh, organization in the U.S. and, and even globally, um, has made decolonization its theme for the upcoming. Um, and the idea is that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to calls for a reassessment and transformation of Russo-centric relationships of power and hierarchy, both in the region and in how we study it. In other words, get Russia out of the narrative, going all the way back 400 years. Reassess everything. Um, this will be an interesting conference because uh, there will be Russian uh, uh, historians. But Putin is using this. Putin now is telling the Russian people, oh, you see now the West wants to do us in. This is not about Ukraine. They want to destroy Russia. And here are examples. They're using this decolonization theme uh, in the propaganda back in Moscow. Um, now, voices on Ukraine, you probably have all heard of uh, the highly, highly criticized John Mearsheimer, University of Chicago, an old style, cynical realist for whom Ukraine is a classic example of a great power not allowing encroachment on its periphery. He'll say, it's as old as history, what did you expect? Well, that's old think as far as Washington is concerned. Um, actually, I mean, so Mearsheimer goes as far as to blame NATO for the crisis, which is where he loses a lot of his uh, listeners. But he's, he's influential on the web. 
Um, his underlying motive for all this, though, is that he is somebody who believes that, as a great power, political scientist, China is the issue for the future. And therefore, we should not be pushing China and Russia together. This is very much against our interests. And therefore, we have to find an accommodation with Russia somehow, because China is the threat. So he has an ulterior motive uh, in his argument. Now, as interesting is my General uh, Mark Milley, who in November, speaking to the Economic Club of New York, gave a speech in which he said, and he, he's the chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said, and this was as of November, he said 100,000 Russian troops are dead or wounded. Ter terrible numbers. But he said, it's the same number for Ukraine. 100,000 Ukrainians as well. And about 40,000 Ukrainians civilians killed. 15 to 30 million Ukrainians displaced. And as he said in this speech, that's a lot of suffering. And then he said, we have to look back to World War I. And we have to avoid the mistakes that were made before World War I when European leaders refused to negotiate in time, leading to the death and suffering of millions more unnecessarily. Now, this speech was really criticized by the administration, by the Ukrainians, by, and he stepped it back for using this 1914 analogy in his speech. The, the thought paradigm that's dominant in Washington, if there's kind of a central vortex for this, I think it's the, it's the thought of Robert Kagan and uh, people like him who are staunch believers in a strong role for America and a belief that this is, if, it's, if this is like anything today, it's like the 1930s. Um, he, uh, he wrote a book, or sorry, wrote an article uh, in 2019 with Anthony Blinken. They're very good friends. Basically saying, we face an increasingly dangerous world that looks like the 1930s. We learned that the world does not govern itself. If the United States abdicated its leading role, the world would descend into chaos and conflict and the jungle would overtake us, as it did in the 1930s. And one of his most famous books is called The Jungle Grows Back. Um, I, I, I have a number of contacts in other, from other countries who don't like be, being referred to as the jungle. But anyway, um, uh, but this is, the, this is the view in Washington, very much. And it's something that would have us stand up to what Russia is doing, thinking of the 1930s. Now, General Valery Zaluzhny is the uh, chief of forces of all armed forces of Ukraine. He gave an interview in December, and he admitted a few things, just like Mark Milley. Um, he said the Russians are wearing down the Ukrainian forces, especially at places like Bakhmut. Um, he felt that the Russians are building up now to, uh, to a major initiative, he believes it's going to come already in February when the ground is frozen. We're hearing on CNN that it's going to be April, May. He's afraid the Russians will move 
uh, in February. And um, he says they could aim for Kiev. They could attack in the south. Um, and he's worried. Um, he, and as he said, he, he, Ukraine needs armor. And he called for 300 tanks as soon as possible in this, in this regard. What's changed in the uh, discussion is the awareness of Ukrainian losses. There's been a lot about Russian losses, but in fact, all along, the Ukrainians are taking terrible losses here with a smaller population. Um, the, the, the army that started the war for Ukraine uh, on February 24th doesn't exist anymore. There, there's a new recruits being called up. And so um, the danger is that if it becomes apparent that it's not just a matter of artillery, but of manpower, pressure will grow for NATO to send in troops. Already, there are columnists in the Guardian newspaper and elsewhere calling for this, even now. Um, and of course, this would be an escalation. The problem is that both sides right now are dug in. Uh, as I described, what Putin wants to hold on to, it's part of Russia, he says. And on the US side, uh, in addition to the 1930s paradigm and the values at stake, um, the idea of giving Russia any kind of a victory or positive outcome would be like the old domino theory. It would embolden China. And so Washington is seeing the conflict in terms of China very much now as well, and not just uh, Ukraine. So, you know, we'll see where this goes, uh, how, um, how quickly this can be, can be scaled down. I'm gonna go into overdrive here <laughs> a little bit. Um, The sanctions have been working well. Janet Yellen, a very nice person, is kind of in charge of these very tough sanctions. She's let it be known that we're prepared to do this to any country. If it moves aggressively, we're warning China that we can have the same kind of sanctions against them that we have against Ukraine. Um, you know, our, we're doing a good job at alliance management. Our allies are supporting us. Uh, most of all, the Brits. The British have been very, very uh, supportive. Um, in spite of the problems they're having uh, post-Brexit, um, you know, the, the, the nation watched with bated breath, literally, recently, uh, when a, a head of lettuce prevailed um, <laughs> in a contest with Prime Minister uh, Liz Truss uh, to see who would last longest. Um, as I say, the Brits are having Quite a, quite a bit of a problem. And in addition to, as we all know, the royal family is in a relatively hairy situation. Um, of Epsteinian proportions. And so, um, but nonetheless, they are, they are, they are really, they have our back and, uh, you know, the, the Brits have really been stepping up. Now, the sanctions um, cutting off Russian oil and gas uh, have led to huge price increases across Europe. Um, at one point, uh, the, Brit the French began to protest. Bruno Le Maire uh, said, quote, the Ukraine crisis could lead to American economic domination as the US benefits from the Ukraine crisis to the detriment um, of, US in of uh, European interests. Of course, we are selling a lot of LNG. Ted Cruz is very happy right now. And the Texas LNG industry is extremely happy with what's going on. 
um, this has all calmed down because the prices, as I said earlier, have come to way down. So it's less of, a, less of an issue. But as I mentioned, the, the Global South has not been supporting uh, as much. And you know, one reason, as you can see here, the countries that have agreed to sanction uh, Russia, it's pretty much NATO and the G7. Uh, other countries have demurred. And of course, China, India are buying a lot of oil and gas from Russia at low prices. The global South has its own problems with, with inflation. As you can see, it's been skyrocketing. Um, it's a combination of, of, of uh, energy, of uh, food prices increasing, and then high interest rates in the West to make it hard to refinance their debt. You know, the typical family in the developing world spends 20% of their income on food. In Africa, it's 40%. So we're seeing forms of unrest in the developing world during this past year. Of course, in Brazil, uh, the Bolsonaro forces uh, taken a page from Trump, the Trump playbook, occupying parliament. Peru has had serious, uh, serious uh, revolt. I have friends who were trapped in Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is closed and the tourists there are unable to get out for now. And we're seeing it south of the border. Here are people crossing the Rio Grande at El Paso. The numbers are way up. Uh, also in Europe, uh, we had 2.2 million arrests along the border in the year to September. That's a record. Uh, we're working with Mexico to have them take about 30,000 Cubans, Haitian, Nicaraguans and Venezuelans back, but uh, and, it's a, and I'd say Europe has also got very high. So this is all part of the dislocation going on in the developing world. They have other issues. Frankly, they see Europe. They see Europe as kind of off in its own set of problems, which aren't necessarily theirs. And some some of the leaders uh, are actually um, rather outspoken about this. For, so, for example. Um, uh, President Ramaphosa, Cyril Ramaphosa uh, of, of South Africa is blaming NATO for the Ukraine crisis and he's accusing the West of racism, saying, hey, the Ukrainians are white. And so your news outlets are 24-7 about the day-to-day -day problems of the Ukrainians. What about Yemen? What about Somalia? What about all these other issues in the world that you neglect because you're racist? That's his basic argument. And by the way, South Africa next week will join Russia and China in military exercises. Um, similarly, um, Macky Sell, who is the head of the African Union, president of Senegal, has said that the, the problems, energy problems, that the de developing world face are because of sanctions, not because of the Russian invasion. Now, we are recognizing that we're losing the global south here. So, um, our diplomats are very active right now in Africa trying to correct the narrative. And um, there was an Africa summit just a month or so ago in Washington. We're going to put a higher priority on Africa now um, in this situation. Okay, very quickly, the sanctions have been most striking um, in the fact that we seized $325 billion of Russian assets parked in the West. There are many people who want to use this money to rebuild Ukraine. Now this is um, this is being seen as a as a uh, as a, a precursor for other countries, and so the IMF is saying this risks fracturing the global financial system. It risks provoking a move away from the dollar, 
because it's the doll that allows the sanctions. And so lo and behold, uh, in, the, um, in the BRICS grouping, they had a recent uh, meeting in which they are now working toward a, uh, an alternative currency. And the Chinese have said that they want to develop this as fast as possible. The idea, China's working on a digital currency. They're buying up gold like there's no tomorrow. The gold markets are being roiled by Chinese purchases. The idea is a digital currency linked to commodities, just the way the dollar used to be. And that would be used within certain spheres that China, act. so it wouldn't be that taking over the financial infrastructure, but a fragmentation of the financial infrastructure. Now we in Washington believe that there's no chance this could ever happen um, because of Tina. Uh, Margaret Thatcher coined this, there's no alternative. And um, because the yuan right now is only 2% two, 2 of global financial purchases. The dollar and the euro dominate. But, but um, there are signs that this could possibly move forward. Um, you know, Joe Biden had a, went to Canosa and fist bumped Mohammed bin Salman, asked the Saudis uh, to increase oil production. They didn't, they did the opposite, which was bad for Biden before his reelection. And Xi Jinping was just there talking about a petro yuan that China uh, will now trade with uh, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and Saudi Arabia uniquely in yuan, um, but it'll be a strong digital yuan, um, and they will offer um, uh, aid for, for downstream development of oil and gas. They're offering the same thing to, the, to, the, to Iran. Whether this goes anywhere, nobody knows. But Brazil and, um, and Argentina, Luis Lula da Silva and Alberto Fernandez, just announced this week a dual currency between their two countries to avoid the dollar. This was the way they phrased it. This is very unlikely to happen. Uh, this would be a real stretch. Anyway, now, very quickly, I'm going over, but started a little bit late. I'm going to just a few more minutes, if you'll bear with me. Um, because on China. So, you know, we have moved away from what they used to call strategic ambiguity on China. Part of the one China policy was that um, we would support Taiwan, but we left it open how far we'd go in supporting them. It's been part of the balance. Well, Joe Biden has said four times, we will support uh, Taiwan militarily. It's been walked back every time, but I think the Chinese are beginning to realize that there's a policy shift because Taiwan is a crucial point in what's called the first island chain. Um, and for our position in Asia and for promoting our values in Asia, as we would say, uh, it's essential. So we have a, and we've declared we have a, a, a vital U.S. national interest in Taiwan now. It's the first time we've ever said that. Not one China, but Taiwan. And we have got the Ch Japanese now to say the same thing. Japan has declared Taiwan a vital Japanese national interest. Um, and finally, Japan is taking steps, just like Germany, to uh, have a stronger military. Uh, they're going to buy Tomahawk missiles from us now, which are offensive, can strike China. Um, as Prime Minister Kishida has said, uh, Japan will go from having a shield 
to having a spear. So all these are important developments there. And as Putin and um, Xi Jinping tightened their relationship, this is a virtual summit they had end of last year, um, their cooperation is growing. Very briefly, uh, Xi Jinping emerged stronger from uh, the party congress that was held. Um, here you can see the Eurasia Group's estimation of his strength uh, in the Politburo and the Standing Committee compared to, uh, to his first two elections. But China has a lot of problems, obviously, a lot of problems. Uh, the handling of COVID, um, it was a real uh, whiplash, if you will, for people. Um, it's unclear how that's going to work. The housing crisis is still there. Um, and so there are people in Washington now, influential people, um, like Hal Brands, who is kind of a rising star at Johns Hopkins sites, who are now arguing, he's always said China's a threat, and he's always said there's going to be a war with China. I mean, he's, it's like a broken record. He's like Gordon Chang that way. His latest book is called Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, and the premise is it's a weak China that's dangerous. Not a strong China, it's a weak China that could cause them to do something, uh, like on Taiwan, for example. But Washington, uh, for its part, um, is still seeing China uh, in terms of its strength. And that strength uh, very much involves tech and the most advanced tech, all of which has military implications. And so crisis is developing over semiconductors. This is sort of a, a look across American centuries here from the second to the third. <laughs> um, quantum computing is a big part of this. Some of the best minds um, in the world are in China on this. Uh, Jen Pan and his young assistant now, who probably is as smart as he is, are leading figures in the world. You can't undo that. You can't sanction that necessarily. This is just brain power. So, you know, uh, the whole semiconductor industry has gravitated to Asia, as you can see here, between 1990 and 2020. It's mostly in Asia now. Uh, one corporation in Taiwan, TSMC, produces about 95% of the highest uh, most refined uh, semiconductor chips, which makes Taiwan even more important. So the architect of our counteroffensive against this now is Jake Sullivan, who says we want to maintain the strongest lead as possible over China in this area. So Jake from Southwest High School is, um, well, he's, he's on one of the, so they talk about in the administration on China, there are cooperationists who believe there could be a win-win Centrists, who for a careful approach, and then the restrict, restrictionists, hardliners, and I'm afraid Jake is among the latter. So the Chips and Science Act uh, will give a lot of subsidies for uh, high tech, um, including for chip makers to build manufacturing plants here. Uh, we want to lure a lot of South Korean, Japanese, and European chip making to our shores so that supply chains are, are right here. Um, in addition, the Inflation Reduction Act also has all kinds of subsidies for tech and also in the green area. Um, and the Build Back Better Bill uh, incentives for electric cars. If you build them here, you'll get all kinds of tax breaks and subsidies. China, uh, rather, Canada and Mexico are included under that umbrella, but the European Union isn't. And so the European Union is protesting and is accusing us of protectionism um, and is vowing to retaliate. Um, the Economist is not amused. 
by what's happening. Um, th this is the most recent issue. They're very critical of the U.S. policy. They say it is, it is like the 1930s, they say. Yes, okay, if you want to have a 1930s paradigm, it's like the protectionism that got going during the 1930s, the tit-for-tat uh, tariffs and things that really brought down the global economy and led to the instabilities that led to World War II. So the economist is saying that the U.S. policy here, of, rather than competing with China, trying to, trying to uh, hobble them, because, you know, we are, we've declared we want to slow China's high-performance computing, we want to freeze in place the semiconductor industry, we want to blacklist Chinese companies, not just Huawei, but all companies. Um, and so a number, we're also going to try to restrict out, outflowing investment to China in high-tech, limits on how U.S. citizens and residents can interact with Chinese corporations. It's a very comprehensive set of uh, countermeasures because we are worried about the Chinese advances in, in high-tech. So, so I'm going to end on a more positive note because, you know, there was a glimmer of hope again at the Bali meeting at the G20. Uh, Biden and Xi agreed to uh, restart low-level working level meetings. Uh, Blinken will go to China in, uh, um, in uh, next year, in February, in February rather. Um, the Chinese are saying, yes, we'll talk, but unless there's concrete action on things like Taiwan, don't expect major cooperation. And of course, we're still gearing up in the Congress for more steps on Taiwan. So we'll see what happens here. At least there's some diplomacy going on. With Russia, there's none. Um, this is Spasso House, the ambassador's residence in Moscow. It's stood vacant since February. Um, pretty much our embassy staff has gone from about 1,500 to about, I think about 300 or something like that. It's, it's I mean, when I was at the embassy in, in Moscow, there were 17 political officers. I think in the 90s, there were like in the 40s. There's one right now. Most of the remaining staff is there for security issues. Um, and so Spasso House is molding and it's in sight of so much diplomacy. So the world, it, for the moment, is breaking down into blocks. Uh, we have to hope that this doesn't happen. This is the dichotomy uh, that's been through all this, throughout this speech, starting in the heights of Davos. Uh, is it geopolitics or is it this lonely planet that that's out there trying to survive. This, this is the dichotomy we're going to have to think through as a nation and in our foreign policy. So I'll stop there. I went over, and I look forward to your questions. Is this working? Okay. Yes. Okay, thank you. Sorry, it's a new mic. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. Um, if you folks have any other questions as we're going along, please pass them to the end of your rows so that Global Minnesota staff can collect them and then bring them up to me. Uh, that would be great. Um, so, Tom, you've talked a lot about the intersection of foreign policy and domestic policy with the CHIPS Act and Build Back Better. Um, and Jake Sullivan has said on numerous occasions over the past couple of years that and this is also included in the national security strategy that was released in October, uh, that domestic policy should serve as the North Star for foreign policy of the Biden administration. 
Um, and so curious about how that is playing out in addition to some of the uh, yeah. tangible initiatives that you've already mentioned. Yep. Um, and as a corollary to that, um, what risks do you see coming from internal threats to U.S. democracy um, in terms of uh, the United States international presence? Yeah, good, good questions. Um, so yeah, Jake Sullivan uh, has always said that the most important thing in our foreign policy is to have a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, and that's, I, think, I, I think that's one reason the U.S. inequality was put in the national security strategy as a major threat. It's the same kind of a outlook that our, our domestic strength is key. So I think that a lot of the programs that have been um, adopted uh, under the Biden administration, um, Build Back Better, Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act, and now the, the, the strategies against the, the, the Chinese tech industry, are intended to create jobs in the US. I mean, Biden has said that uh, 40,000 or more new jobs will result from these policies. Now, the Boston Consulting Group issued a report a month or two ago saying that actually, no, 40,000 jobs will be lost because so many US corporations are really intertwined with China and will have a hard time extricating themselves um, uh, in, a, in a smooth way. Um, in addition, you know, a lot of our allies are balking at this. Um, you know, we're, we're insisting that they go along. It's interesting that we consulted with all of our allies before un announcing these latest policies against Chinese semiconductors. Um, but then we went on and announced it on our own because we didn't get the buy-in from the Asians or from the Europeans on this. So this, this trade issue, um, what we see as a foreign policy for the middle class and creating jobs is seen by other countries to some extent as protectionist um, and as potentially starting a new trade war. So to this degree, our domestic politics are having a heavy influence and maybe they should because you know we, we let the semiconductor industry go, supply chains, I mean now the talk is uh, not um, just in time supply chains, but just in case supply chains. Everyone's trying to bring their supply chains home and have a better, you know, a, a better hold and handle on them. So, um, yeah, I mean, this, I, I think that this is important for Jake Sullivan and for the administration, and I think that they, um, the, the, the big issue will be, the Europeans are insisting that they get the same treatment as the Mexicans and the Canadians, in these, in other words, that they be given the subsidies and not be on the outside. And the administration has not agreed to that yet, and there's still negotiations going on. So this might get, might get diffused. Um, so yeah, and then um, the internal threats, because they're linked. You know, uh, a, a lot of unemployment, social dislocation, uh, economic dislocation in the US, I mean, obviously can have political ramifications. So I think that's also in the mind of the administration. Um, you know, uh, we had a speaker in another organization um, recently, uh, Sheila Berman from Barnard College, who's a big expert on, on democracy. And she said, I, I found rather shockingly, that the greatest threat in the West right now uh, to democracy is in the US. That the US is the outlier. 
And I thought, well, now all these populist movements that are gaining strength in Europe, you've got Maloney and Italy, and, and her point was a proportional electoral system of multiple parties can much more easily manage and integrate this kind of anti-democratic movement than a two-party system. Because if, if, that, if a movement like that takes possession of one of the two parties, it's an immediate threat to, to the system with the bully pulpit. So she was, she was saying that, that actually the US political structure uh, opens up a vulnerability. This was her analysis. I'm not sure I agree because, I mean, in Israel, for example, you've got a right-wing coalition, right? This is a number of parties that came together for a right-wing government that is threatening the judiciary, just like in Poland or Hungary. So, um, and, and I'm sure you've seen that, you know, for our FBI, the number one, number one terrorist threat is, is, is internal, is domestic. Thank you. Um, as you can imagine, there are a number of questions related to U.S. engagement on Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, and as usual, there are so many fantastic questions. And they're also beautifully worded, so thank you for that. Um, so I'm just going to read out a couple of these here, yeah. um, kind of around a similar theme. Um, so should Russia consider NATO expansion as an existential threat? Um, actually, we'll, we'll, let's start with that one, and then, then I have some other broader ones on Russia. Um, and could you talk about Putin's perspective on that? Could you also talk about how things are going for the Russian people and how they're regarding the war in Ukraine? Yeah, That's, uh, the last one was a tough one to get at. Um, so, you know, I don't know. There, um, there's so much been written about the 1990s and what was or was not promised to the Russians. Um, and it is true that with each new wave of NATO expansion, starting with the Visegrad countries and going to the Baltic states, the, the Russians have stomached it. I mean, even Putin was in, had been in for four years when the Baltic states came into NATO. Um, and at every juncture, the Russian, mess, and, and Bill Burns talks about this a lot, is okay, all right, but not Ukraine and not Georgia. It's, it's been a constant. So I, I think in, in some ways the Russians are almost, it's like they feel disrespected and it's like, okay, that's it. You know, that's the last straw kind of, a, kind of a thing. Nothing justifies what they've done. And, you know, there are ways that if Russia had evolved in a more democratic direction, uh, there wouldn't be these problems. They'd be much more integrated into Europe uh, as, as they tried to become in the 1990s unsuccessfully. There was, there was one point, I, I have a hard time knowing how this factors in. I, I don't know. But the Biden administration is much more organized than its predecessor. Um, the team is, it's the same team that was under Obama, that would have been under Hillary. I mean, this group, Victoria Nuland, Kurt Campbell, um, Jake, you know, this is a tight group and very competent. So in a very organized way, they set out in Biden's first year to um, clarify the US position to go away from strategic ambiguity. So they, they announced that Ukraine was a vital US national interest and Taiwan, a vital U.S. national interest, which had not happened before. Now, this just, it's just wording, but, you know, it, it, it indicates something. And so when the U.S. signed a strategic charter with Ukraine in early September, not NATO, 
It was bilateral and with the prompt, once again, vital U.S. national interest and integrate Ukraine fully into all transatlantic institutions, including NATO, Russia mobilized five days later. And I think that the Chinese are, are uh, taking umbrage at, at the shifts, even the verbal shifts on Taiwan. Um, do, are they really threatened? I mean, we say, you know, NATO's a defensive organization and we don't threaten you. And probably one of the real threats to Russia would be, at least to Putin, a thriving democracy in Ukraine next door as a, as a model. So all these factors are in play, but I think a big part of it is Putin's, and maybe this is more widely spread in Russia, but I, I'm not sure it is. Among the older Russians, yes. Um, because a lot of the Russian, the young Russians have left. I've met them all over the world, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in online, in places. And, um, you know, the, 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 the word was that we're 700, 300,000 had left, young techie Russians. It's now seven to 800,000 have left. Um, they're in the Maldives, they're in Armenia, they're, in, they're, they're everywhere working, you know, for Russian companies uh, online. Um, because Putin's been very careful not to disturb the intelligentsia. You know, he's recruiting out of the prisons, he's recruiting out of the far reaches of the Russian uh, expanse. So I think a lot of young Russians don't buy this outlook. Uh, older Russians, maybe so, and the church uh, is very supportive of Putin. Whether these, the latest sort of, sort of indications in the West that we would go further to try to break up Russia somehow, whether that's effectively uh, making Russians more nationalistic, I don't know. Um, I, I'll say that the opinion polls done by, by Pew um, with the Levati Institute in, in Russia uh, indicate that Russians now, do, in vast majority, do not consider themselves European. That's the, and, and they're seeing themselves as a Eurasian power. Thank you. Um, so we, many, many more questions around uh, the threat posed by Russia in terms of a nuclear conflict. Uh -huh. And I think these are all really beautifully worded. I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to say them all in quick succession here. Mm -hmm. If we push for deconstruction of Russia, will they resort to nuclear reactions? Are we sleepwalking toward a wider European war? What is an exit strategy for this, if it is true? How would you assess the nuclear threat coming from Russia and how this might affect US support for Ukraine? And what is the major risk of escalation in Ukraine? Right. Yeah. Yes, well. Yeah, um, you've already touched, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Putin has, I mean, he's been saber rattling in words saying, you know, the nuclear threat is not a bluff. You know, under certain circumstances, we'll use weapons, and one of those circumstances is a risk to the Russian state, uh, to disintegration of the Russian state. He's also making a big deal about their more advanced weapons. The Russians are ahead of us in hypersonic weaponry, and they have something called the Zircon missile, which is, it can be launched from, some, from stealth submarines. It's uh, hypersonic, nine times the speed of sound. Um, they've deployed them, in fact, this exercise of China, Russia, and South Africa will have a Zircon missile submarine as part of it. Um, so the Russians are kind of saying, you know, this, we will escalate if necessary. Now, in Washington, nobody believes that. So for instance, at Davos, 
Boris Johnson spoke, uh, and his whole speech was about how the Russians will never, will never escalate. So don't worry about that. They will not go nuclear. You know, the, the concern is, well, like Japan, as I pointed out, uh, in the early 1940s, it was a suicidal act. I mean, the Japanese military knew that they, in fact, that there's a quote from one of their commanders that they were awakening a sleeping monster by attacking Pearl Harbor, that, that, that this would galvanize America and, you know, and so, but if, if countries are cornered that way, do they stay rational? I mean, we, we raised, we rattled the nuclear saber, if, if that's a mixed metaphor, um, over Cuba. I mean, a, a number of our, you know, a number of our generals uh, were urging the use of nuclear weapons over Cuba. So, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I think that the Russians are, um, I, I think they're taking this methodically step by step. Uh, I think they still think there's a chance that they can prevail uh, with conventional weapons. Would they negotiate? Um, you know, if the loss, if it becomes clear that it's a, it's a stalemate that's not going to go anywhere. You know, when the war started, Zelensky proposed neutrality for Ukraine. And the Russians were talking about that. There was nothing about seizing the whole eastern part of Ukraine. That came later. So would it be possible for all sides to go back to those positions from, from February 24th, having already staked them out? and just say, well, okay, we'll go back to our original position. But for both sides, as I mentioned, for us, China is looming there. We don't want to set any precedents that the Chinese may misinterpret, and the Russians, and also a lot of blood has been lost now, and so that also makes it hard. Um, I personally don't think it'll go nuclear, if I had to bet, um, but it's an emotional, very emotional war, so. Thank you. Uh, could we have a time check to help? One more. Okay. Well, all right. In that case, I, I will try to we'll try to end on a, on a positive note. Um, can you share any examples of good governance in the world? <laughs> yes. 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 I can. <laughs> so, there's an example of very good governance, but she just stepped down at the age of 42. <laughs> I, I think it Jacinda Ardern did a very good job in New Zealand. There are a number of female leaders right now, young female leaders. Uh, in the West, uh, in the Scandinavian countries. I mean, okay, Liz Truss was beaten out by a cabbage, but still she, you know, and um, so yes, and, you know, and the Scandinavian countries continue to keep a balance even as they become more diverse. Uh, they still, although Sweden has shifted a bit now, uh, the Swedish Democrats are, are coming up. Um, Chile was always seen as a very good example of good governance, um, and some of the crises hitting the developing world now have, have touched on them. Ethiopia was doing great. They had the highest growth rate in the, in the world um, before the outbreak of conflict. So, um, no, there are a lot of good examples, and, and you know, in the 1990s, it appeared that there was a, a, a tsunami of democracies, not just in Eastern Europe. Um, people talk about the democratic recession now, and the, the challenge seems to be in functioning democracies with, with real democratic elections. Uh, candidates get elected who then seek to undermine from within using that position. Uh, we saw some of that here, of course. Um, um, Israel, I don't know how far Netanyahu will go here. 
with some of his plans. Um, you know, Orban is democratically elected. So in some ways, the, the threat, even within well-functioning democracies, can come that way. And so what you really need is an educated populace. That's something I worry about here. Uh, just, you know, students are really not being inculcated with the basic information you need to, to be a democratic citizen. Um, hopefully some of that will change. Um, but no, it's, the democracy is hanging in there. And, um, and um, like I say, I, I, I was very sad to see Jacinda Ettern step down. And she was being very democratic in doing it. I mean, just stepping back from office, so. All right, with that, let's give Tom a round of applause. Let's give one more big round of applause to Tom. That was amazing. It's yet another thorough and insightful policy, foreign policy update. Um, I think we're all going to leave here tonight feeling a bit more confident and a bit more informed about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we, we talked about some tough topics. I appreciated that occasionally. You, you let us off with a little humor. That was, so, that was helpful, but um, there are a lot of tough subjects up there that we had to talk about tonight, and it's great to get the opportunity to learn about it. I was super impressed with all of your questions. Well, thank you for taking the time to make thoughtful questions and make this a discussion between all of us about these important issues. Um, I want to take a minute to say thank you as well to the Global Minnesota staff and team members that helped to put tonight together. Thank you. I particularly want to thank uh, Katie Kelly, who's only been on staff with us for three weeks and had major responsibility in putting tonight's event together. So congratulations, Katie, for that work. A uh, huge round of applause for Nick uh, for providing the interpretation tonight. Um, it's been said that I speak a little fast at times, so I was impressed you kept up with me. Thank you, Nick, for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, in a moment, I'd like to uh, invite you all outside the hall for a small reception. Uh, but first, I want to let you know about an upcoming event uh, that our programming team is working now to finalize. Uh, at the end of February, we'll be hosting a Somali policy update to facilitate a better understanding of the humanitarian and political crisis unfolding in the East African country. So please keep an eye out on your inboxes for a special invite uh, to that program in the coming weeks. Uh, if you're curious about that or other events or programming that we have, um, you can certainly uh, ask the staff for a flyer out in the um, uh, entrance area out here as we leave tonight or certainly check out our website or even better, become a member and we will keep you up to date on what's going on at Global Minnesota. Thank you all again so much for being here this evening. Um, for those that were here in person tonight, again, you certainly can join us out in the gallery space for cake and coffee reception. Uh, for those that are participating virtually, this uh, marks the official end of our program. I can't say again enough uh, coming on board as your new Global Minnesota president how thankful I am for everyone's hand that's been extended to me, for the, uh, for the uh, information you've provided me, the support you've provided me, and most importantly, the enthusiasm you've provided me for this important thing that we're all doing together here, which is elevating uh, the understanding of people across our state uh, about the important global issues of our day. 
Thank you for taking time to be a part of this great activity and movement that we're doing here together. And I want to thank you all and, again, wish you a great and lovely evening. Thanks, everyone.